You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. My name is Joe Carson, and I serve in Connections and co-lead a gospel community group. Today, I'll be reading from Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5. Please open your Bibles with me. Give you a second to do so. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under the seat in front of you. So Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is the word of the Lord. Church family, good to see you this morning. Hope you are doing well. Uh, If I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful to be with you. I'd love to invite you, if you would, turn with me to Genesis chapter 49. I want you to hear one of the most exhilarating messages about the 12 tribes of Israel that you have ever heard in your life, because it's the only one you've ever heard in your life. Uh, Genesis 49 is where we are picking up. You know, one of the central themes of the book of Genesis, if not the central theme in the book of Genesis, is God's promise to provide and to bless the earth with a messianic king who will redeem God's people from sin's curse. And all of Genesis is really the search for who that king is. And when you think about this imagery of a messianic king, this royal king who is gonna come save us, who is gonna undo what sin's curse had done and make all things new and heal all things again, That imagery of that king, it began in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth. And remember where he placed the first man and woman that he created in a garden. It was this royal imagery. Gardens were only for kings. And it was this imagery of God's garden. God is the king who rules and reigns. But yet in that garden where all was good, we saw an insurrection. We saw a coup where God's own creation rebelled against him, committed the highest act of treason you can commit to try to become God themselves, led by Satan in which Adam and Eve followed. And everything was lost. Everything was lost in that moment. And God put a curse upon the earth when sin entered in and fractured everything. But in doing so, God promised there would be one, the seed of Eve, who would come and crush the head of that serpent. It's this imagery of this conquering king. There will be a future king who will come through the line of this woman, who will make all things new once again. And that's the promise right out of the gate. And what Moses does in the book of Genesis is he's gonna trace that promise through a series of what's called toledotes. Talked about this from the very beginning. It's the Hebrew word for generations. Uh, 10 times you're gonna see in the book of Genesis. uh, Genesis. These are the generations of, these are the Toledotes of. And the first Toledote was the biggest. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It's the most expansive, super wide. And what Moses is gonna do throughout the book of Genesis is he's going to narrow down those Toledotes, tracing these family lines. And he's gonna narrow it down to Abraham, that this promised seed, that serpent crusher, it's gonna come through Abraham, it's gonna come through his seed and then through Isaac of his children and then through Jacob and we get narrow and narrow all the way down to Jacob until we're staring in the eyes of 12 sons of Jacob. And the question in chapter 37 was, who is gonna be the son that will continue this line by which this messianic king will come through? Who's gonna be the one? And from that point forward in chapter 37, it's like a Texas Rangers dot race. 
Is it gonna be Reuben? Oh, he's in front. No, it's not gonna be Reuben. Oh, it must be Simeon and Levi. No, they fell down. And then you're gonna see, is it Judah? No, oh, it must be Joseph. No, maybe not. Well, here comes Judah again. And it's this dot race to find out who's going to be the king. And as Logan so masterfully, by the way, walked us through those three chapters last week, such a phenomenal job handling the text, Logan, we saw a crazy twist it's not gonna to go to any of the firstborn sons as you would expect. It's gonna go through Joseph. And to be honest with you, it's not even Joseph as much as it is gonna be his two children. And you see that adoption ceremony in chapter 48 when Jacob will take these two sons of Joseph and make them his own. And so this promise is, looks like it goes, goes forth. And here's what's gonna happen in chapter 49 this week. By the way, we end Genesis next week. Can you believe it? Two years, the end's all next week. But in chapter 49, uh, Moses is going to emphatically answer that question that was asked since Genesis 3.15 of who is this messianic king going to come through? It's emphatically gonna be answered in chapter 49, but in a way that presents a twist that nobody in Israel would be able to see for the next thousand years after Genesis was written. But here in chapter 49, we're gonna see where that twist begins. The answer that Genesis 49 provides concerning the promised messianic king that we are waiting for is one that you right now in our 21st century, 2023, you can bank your entire life on because of what Genesis 49 declares and can give you rock solid hope in a day that is crippled by fear and anxiety in our world right now, with all that's going on, you can know emphatically through Genesis 49 who that king is and that he sits on that very throne today in control of everything. That is the hope of Genesis 49. Genesis 49, Jacob has now been reunited with his family down in Egypt, as we have seen. He's now on his deathbed and he is going to gather his sons around him for his final words. Listen to this in verses one and two. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel your father. Oftentimes, in as was patriarchal custom, the father would gather his children around him on his deathbed and he would pronounce a blessing over them. In fact, many of your subtitles in whatever Bible you have, translation probably has this subtitle Jacob blesses his sons or something like that in Genesis 49. And it's because you're gonna see, first of all, six times when it comes to Joseph, you're gonna see the word blessing. Uh, in, in verse 28 of this chapter, you're gonna see the word blessing three times to sum up this whole chapter. But really, in all honesty, blessing is not actually the most accurate term that's happening here. Because you're gonna see a lot of cursing in this text. Not with foul words, but with horrific predictions about what's going to happen with these kids. They don't feel the first three right out of the gate aren't gonna feel like a blessing that they're gonna be receiving. What you're actually gonna see here in chapter 49 are prophetic oracles, whereby based on his son's past and present characteristics and inclinations, we get this from verse 28, the things that were suitable to these sons, you're gonna get an indication of what is to come years later when they enter into the promised land, specifically what these are gonna become as the 12 tribes of Israel and what you can expect with each of these tribes. That's what Jacob is doing here. He's pronouncing an oracle over them. And in doing so, he's going to announce not only who the birthright will not pass through, but who the birthright will pass through. And even more than that, without fully knowing it himself, Jacob will announce whom our messianic hope is going to come through, through these oracles. So let's quickly walk through these. I wanna highlight 10 of these very quickly and then camp on two of these. Notice the firstborn son. 
Reuben, the son of Leah, Jacob's first wife, his non-favorite wife, I might add, Reuben here. Notice this in verse three. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. It's as if to say, Reuben, you had it all. You're my firstborn son. This was everything that a firstborn son and heir of the birthright was expected to be preeminent in all things. However, however, verse four, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. You are as unstable as the ocean, Reuben. The birthright will not pass on to you, my firstborn son. Why? Because in chapter 35, being insecure about his place in the family, he chose to manipulate his way to the birthright. And in a power grab, he slept with his father's concubine to try to have children through her to secure that birthright. And it backfired. Reuben was insecure, he was unstable, and he was proud. And he tried to manipulate his way into the birthright rather than to wait upon the Lord. So it will not go to him. I want you to see this map. You know one thing I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a map and I'm gonna give you a lot of map today, all right? Map, look at this map of these 12 tribes. This is 430 years later where they're gonna settle in the promised land. Notice, notice where Reuben is in this map. Reuben is there on the east side of the Jordan River. He's gonna cash in his inheritance early before they even enter into the promised land. He's gonna try to obtain that area. It's a smaller settlement there. You're never gonna hear of any significant Reubenites from that point forward. Reuben's tribe will never rule or have a position of authority. In fact, they're gonna join in Korah's rebellion against Moses later on. And they are gonna be among the first to be conquered by the Assyrians in 722. So it does not go well with Reuben. He is not going to receive the birthright. This promised king will not come through him. Well, how about the second or even third born that come in the line after? Let's look at Simeon and Levi, also sons of Leah as well. You see this in verse five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Yeah, they are brothers. They're, they're all brothers, but these two are unique brothers because they are brothers in crime. And they are weapons of violence are their swords, is what he said. In Hebrew, literally what that means is that their swords are swords of circumcision. And that's a play on words. Because in chapter 34, remember, one man named Shechem defiled their sister Dinah, raped their sister Dinah. And they wanted justice, yes, but they ended up carrying out vengeance instead. Rather than going and seeking justice to the one who committed the crime, they tricked all the men of the city into getting circumcised and then they killed every one of them in retaliation. It was an unjust killing. And so because of their anger, because of that, they will not receive the birthright. Look at this in verse six and seven. Let my soul not, uh, come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory be not joined to their company. For in their anger, they killed men and in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger for it is fierce and their wrath for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So Jacob tells them, because of your wickedness, you will not receive the birthright. You're not gonna be second in line. It's because Reuben's out, but it's not coming to you either. And in fact, I'm going to divide you. And so what's gonna happen 430 years later? Look at the map again. Notice, first of all, where Simeon is, Simeon, his scattering is actually gonna fall within the territory of Judah. He's not even gonna have his own border territory. He's gonna be scattered within Judah. And 
will not be prominent at all. What about Levi? Do you see a tribe of Levi on that map? No. Now, what you're gonna find later is this is actually gonna be a good scattering because Levi, the tribe of Levi, will become the Levites, those who will serve in the priesthood. And rather than receiving a territorial allotment, they're gonna be scattered amongst 48 cities all throughout the tribes of Israel so that they can help lead the people in worship of Yahweh. But both tribes prophetically, just as Jacob said, are going to be scattered. They're not gonna have a prominent settlement in the land. And so that's what happens with them. They're not gonna receive it. How about Judah, fourthborn? We're gonna come back to him in a moment because that's where the twist is going to come. Let's continue though. How about Zebulun? Look at verse 13. Zebulun, also a son of Leah. He says, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Now, this is an interesting one. This is one of the harder ones to interpret because I want you to look at the map again. Notice where Zebulun is. It's right up at the top around near the Sea of Galilee, little purple section, tiny little section. Zebulun is not near the border, is he? Sidon is way up at the top of Asher's territory. And Zebulun's not on the coast. So this one's harder to figure out. What did Jacob mean by this? Um, Now, two thoughts. Some believe that the original allotment of Zebulun maybe originally occurred right there on the Mediterranean Sea, according to Joshua 19, when they were placed. And so there was a time. Certainly, they are on a major trade route between the Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, they are going to play a major role in shipping and uh, in that uh, particular commodity. But some others interpret this as a future prophecy still to be fulfilled in the earthly reign of the Messiah in Revelation 19, when these allotments go back into place. So either way, what you're meant to see here, though, is that the birthright doesn't go to Zebulun either. He, his line, will not carry the hope of the future messianic king. Well, how about Issachar? Look at verse 14 and 15. Issachar is a strong donkey. A lot of the imagery here of animals, by the way, but it's strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and he became a servant at forced labor. Now, this one's interesting too. He's pictured as a strong donkey that found a great place to rest. So let's look at them on the map. 430 years later, when they entered in the promised land, notice where Issachar is gonna settle, right there next to Zebulun, just south of the Sea of Galilee, that little red area. Issachar is there. They will settle on some of the most fertile land in all of Israel in the Jezreel Valley. It is a great settlement and a great resting place for agriculture and herds, but it happens to be in the Jezreel Valley, the place where invading armies are gonna have to cross through in order to get to Jerusalem. And in fact, just so you know, this is true story, more battles have been fought in the Jezreel Valley of Israel than on any other one place on planet earth in the history of the earth. In fact, Napoleon, when he came into Israel, he looked at the Jezreel Valley and he said, I quote, I have seen no greater place for a battle to take place in all my warfares than right here in the Jezreel Valley. Right next door to Issachar is gonna be the mountain of Megiddo, known as Har Megiddo, where we get the term Armageddon. It's where the battle of Armageddon will begin in prophetic history, right there next door in the Jezreel Valley. And so the prophecy here is that essentially Issachar's greatest asset, this land, this valley, is gonna end up becoming their greatest threat. And some see it as they're gonna rest in laziness. They're gonna get too comfortable They're gonna become so accustomed to the great comfort that they have there that they're asleep at the wheel when the enemies come in. And one day they're gonna be forced into servant labor rather than their own labor, which indeed is exactly what happens and what the Canaanites will do to them 
shortly after they settle in that land. And so once again, we see whatever's gonna happen to this car, one thing that's not happened is the promise line's not going through them. And so minus Judah here, this concludes all the sons that Jacob had with Leah. And you see blessings and you see curses and none of them are given the promised firstborn birthright yet. Let's move on. How about the sons of Jacob's concubines? Bilhah and Zilpah. First, we have Dan in verse 16. Dan is the son of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid. What about Dan? Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent, however, in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. And I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. We're told here at the beginning, Dan is to be a great tribe of influence in Israel. In fact, the word Dan means to judge. And so out of this line are gonna come prominent judges. Maybe the most famous judge in all of Israel is, comes from Dan. We would know him by Samson, Samson. And so this is true. But what you see here in this prophecy is that they will end up playing the role of a serpent biting at the heels. Many feel that's a play on words. Remember what Jacob, Jacob was given this pronouncement. Remember what Jacob's name means, heel grabber. Jacob was used to trying to obtain the birthright by manipulating his way from behind, tripping up people from behind, starting with his brother Esau, trying to manipulate his way to the birthright. That's not how it's to be done. Many feel that he is actually expressing his own confession through this pronouncement on his own son, Dan. You're gonna end up doing the same thing and buddy, it's not gonna work out for you to be a heel grabber, to grab from behind. And in fact, that is exactly what's gonna happen with Dan. Everything's gonna go south with Dan. In Judges 18, the tribe of Dan will become incredibly violent. And what they will do in Judges 18, they will actually depart from their land. I want you to see this on the map. Look on the map again, where Dan is. You see him on the far east coast to your left, there in the green section. That's where they were given their allotment. But what happens in Judges 18 is they got too tired of fighting the battles. And they say, forget it, this is too hard. And what the entire tribe of Dan does is they pack up and they leave and they head up north. In fact, you can see in Naphtali's section at the very top, there is a city called Dan. That's where they're gonna resettle. And you know what they're gonna do there? They're gonna fall into complete idolatry. They're gonna build a pagan temple up there and demand that all of Israel worship there rather than Jerusalem. They're gonna lead the entire nation of Israel into idolatry that's gonna end up in their captivity in 722 BC when the Assyrians come in and knock them out. And ironically, when you get to Revelation chapter seven and the list of the tribes are there, there's one tribe that's missing. It's Dan. It's been wiped off the books because of their idolatry. You were meant to be a great leader and you didn't. You led the people in idolatry and you're gone. So Dan is out. How about Gad verse 19? Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. And again, Gad, if you see them on the map, Gad also cashed in their inheritance early, just like Reuben there on the East Coast. And Gad, the son of Zilpah here, like Reuben, Gad is another border tribe, often gonna be attacked by invaders first from the East. But Gad had a history of chasing them off just as Jacob said they would do. But again, Gad is not the one who's gonna carry the birthright. Well, how about Asher? Look at verse 20. Asher's food shall be rich and he shall yield royal delicacies. It's an interesting prophecy, but when you look at Asher on the map, he's up there in that coastal region, right on the Mediterranean Sea at the very top. Asher, some, again, incredibly fertile land in the Ezreelon Valley, very fertile place. It's like Napa Valley of Israel, or it's the Highland Park of Israel, whichever one you wanna go. 
They were the ones who were gonna export some of the choicest foods in all of Israel. Asher's export was gonna be the foods that would go to kings, not just of Israel, but also the kings of the surrounding nations that they would do trade with. And so they're gonna be blessed mightily, but not with the firstborn right. And so it will not come through him. The blessing will not come through Asher. How about Naphtali right next door? Verse 21, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Now here's an interesting deal. That word fawns can be translated a couple of different ways. It's very similar to the Hebrew word words. And in fact, some of your translations says it. It's debated. Is this fawns or is this words? My lean is that it's words that Naphtali is a doe that has been, that has been let loose and bears beautiful words. Why is that important? Here's why. Look at the map again for Naphtali. It's not only a beautiful territory in Israel, it envelops the west coast of the Sea of Galilee. And why is that a big deal? Because there's a prophecy that's gonna come later on, about 700 years before Jesus. The prophet Isaiah will say this. Listen to this in Isaiah 9.1. There will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Put the map back up here. I want you to see this. This prophecy about Naphtali right around the Sea of Galilee, says it's gonna be a very dark time for them. They're gonna be inhabited by a pagan ruler who's gonna rule over them and be again oppressing them. And this is a prophecy about Rome. But there's a day coming, Isaiah said, when light is gonna burst through there by the Sea of Galilee in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. And indeed, that is exactly what happens when the ministry of Jesus Christ is birthed. Jesus will do the majority of his ministry right there in the land of Naphtali. Jesus, who is the word of God, who speaks the word of God, great things are going to come from Naphtali through the word of Jesus Christ. And that is what we believe is being prophesied here from Jacob to Naphtali. But all that being awesome, he's still not the one whom the birthright will come through. And so that concludes all the sons of the concubines. So now it leaves us with the sons of Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife, and her two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Now we'll come back to Joseph in a moment because I want to show you him in a second, but let's finish here with Benjamin. Verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. So here's Benjamin, beloved son of Rachel, the youngest of all of them. This is gonna be the tribe that is gonna turn out to be the greatest of all the warriors in Egypt or in Israel. The tribe of Benjamin is gonna be like the Navy SEALs of Israel. One of the most famous Benjamites is a judge by the name of Ehud. Ehud had a withered right hand. Your right hand was your hand of strength. It's how the warriors fought with, but he had a withered hand. And yet in the story of Ehud, he goes in and takes out the wicked king of Eglon with his left hand. And from that time forward, every Benjamite son in Israel's history will be trained to fight with their left hand because of Ehud so that in battle, they would not only have one hand of strength, they would have two. And they became the fiercest warriors. In fact, siege ramps that goes up to um, uh, palaces for invading armies when they go up, it always, siege ramps always went up and to the left. Because when you went around the corner, you could have your right hand taken out first. But the Benjamites fought with their left hands and they could never have their strong hand taken out. This is a fascinating tribe in Israel. But more than that, look at this on the map with Benjamin. 
Do you notice where Benjamin is? He's tucked there right in the center of Israel, just below Ephraim, just above Judah. Benjamin, that tiny little space that's right there, actually has the most treasured possession in it in all of Israel that's still being fought over this day. Do you know what it is? It's the city of Jerusalem. It's right there in the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is the son who received five times the portion of anybody else. But he doesn't have a big portion here, but he does in the city that he has, Jerusalem. And it's in Jerusalem that all the nations are going to be blessed. In Jerusalem where the Messiah will be crucified one day, defeating our greatest enemies in the morning as he hangs on the cross where he destroys sin, Satan, and death. And yet by evening, he's declaring victory in the grave dividing the spoils by leading forth a host of captives of which we are represented in this room. The spoils of that Messiah that he conquered on that cross there in Jerusalem. So great, great blessing for Benjamin here, the youngest son. But the firstborn birthright is still not coming through him. And so that leaves us now with two. Will it come through Judah or will it come through Joseph? Now, I want you to see Joseph starting in verse 22. These two sons, one son of Rachel, who is Joseph, and one son of Leah, who is Judah. Notice the blessing here on Joseph, the son of Rachel, starting in verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough. Bough is a tree, by the way. It's a fruit, it's like the big branch on a tree, the most significant branch on a tree. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. It's like Psalm 1, a tree planted by streams of living water. Beautiful picture of Joseph right here. And notice the tense, it's not future tense. It's not you will be, no, he is. He is blessed. This guy is an incredible, he's the second most prominent position in all of Egypt right now. He is blessed. He's a fruitful tree right here. And so Joseph, even though he's blessed, it didn't seem that way at first. Look at this in verse 23. Remember his history. The archers bitterly attacked him. That's speaking about his brothers that tried to sell him, that sold him into slavery and tried to have him dead. They shot at him. They harassed him severely yet his bow remained unmoved. Even though all hell came after Joseph, he did not fall in his time in Egypt. Why? Because the end of verse 24, his bow remained unmoved. Why? Because his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd the stone of Israel. The reason Joseph did not fall in all the suffering he went through is God. And God has given two terms right there in parentheses. He is a shepherd and he is a stone to Joseph. He is a shepherd who cared for Joseph with his presence in Egypt. And he is the stone, the rock who upheld Joseph with his providence there in Egypt. And that same God who blessed Joseph all through his sufferings is the same God who now future tense now will, in verse 25, who will help you by the Almighty, who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. That's rains that will fall on you. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. That's rivers and streams that will be mighty and fruitful. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. You're gonna multiply with great descendants. And the blessings of your father are mighty beyond blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. Man, these blessings are gonna extend through you, Joseph, all the way to to the border territories, spilling over on the other nations. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Now here's the deal. Make no mistake about it. What we're seeing right here is that the birthright is going to Joseph. 
he is the promised line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now the blessing is going to Joseph. Jacob says as much, the blessings of my parents, they're going to you. They're going to you. And um, that's gonna happen. But I want you to notice on the map. Look on the map again. Where do you see the tribe of Joseph? You don't, do you? And the reason is because of what we saw in chapter 48. That blessings that go into Joseph is actually extending through his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And as much, we're told as much. In 1 Chronicle 5, we are told that the birthright is going to Joseph and will extend through his two sons who will be the half tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. They will take Joseph's place in that blessing, a double portion of blessing. And even in that, we saw through the crossing of hands in chapter 48, the blessing is gonna continue from Joseph to Ephraim. Ephraim. Now, why is all this important? Here's what I want you to see. For the next, it's important to understand this, the next 1,000 years that will follow this, all of Israel thought that that promised one from Genesis 3.15, who will crush the head of the serpent, they thought it was gonna come through Joseph and through Ephraim. That's what they believed. And in fact, Moses, at the very end of Deuteronomy, he is gonna pronounce these same blessings over the 12 tribes of Israel right before they enter into the promised land. And Judah's only gonna get one line. Everybody else is gonna get one line. Joseph is gonna get a, a whole tree, a whole truth of theology poured out upon him and his son Ephraim. Everybody in Israel for the next thousand years believed that their deliverer, their conquering king was gonna come through Joseph's line, through Ephraim's line. And uh, so much so Moses believed this that when it's time for Israel to enter the promised land, do you know who he handed the torch off to? He handed it not to a Judahite, not to a Reubenite. He handed it to an Ephraimite, a guy by the name of Joshua, who will lead the people into the promised land. Everybody believed the Messianic king was gonna come through Ephraim, through Joseph. So if that's the case, then what do we do with Judah? Here's where the twist comes in. We'll close with him. Go back to verse eight. Judah, your brothers shall praise your hand. That's a play on words. The name Judah means to praise. Your brothers are to praise you. Your brothers are to praise you. Does that sound familiar? Sounds like Joseph's dream, actually. They're gonna bow to you. Well, now they're gonna bow to Judah. What? What's going on here? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. So Judah is going to have an exalted role. The question is, what kind of role? Two things about that role we see in the next two verses. Verse nine, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. So one picture of Judah's exalted role is that of a lion. The imagery of a lion that's going forth to conquer his prey of which no one can contend with. That's one aspect of Judah's exalted role. Here's another one though in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute, or the Hebrew word there is Shiloh, until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples, not just the Jews, Jews and Gentiles. They're gonna come at the feet of Judah. And so first imagery is that of a lion. Second imagery is that of a scepter and a, and a staff, a ruler's staff. A scepter and a ruler's staff are the instruments that belong to a king symbols of rule and reign. Now there's a lot of debated, debated commentary here, but here's what I believe that Jacob is saying about Judah. Judah, there is a kingly rule that actually belongs to your line, but it's not yours yet. My firstborn blessing is going with Joseph and that's true, but there's a kingly rule that's actually gonna go through your line, but it's not yours yet 
But there is a day coming when the one to whom that rule ultimately belongs to, that's a word tribute. Hebrew word Shiloh literally means he to him, the one to whom it will be sent. That one someday will come along and will grab that scepter And from that time forward, that scepter will never depart from that one's hand. Meaning there is an eternal rule that is going to come through your line at some point. And that eternal rule, when it manifests itself, here's what you can expect in the day of all the earth. Look at this in verse 11 and 12. In that day, You'll be able to bind the foal. You'll be able to bind your foal, that is your donkey, to the vine and the donkey's colt to the choice vine. And you'll be able to wash your garments in wine and your vesture in the blood of grapes. And your eyes will be darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. In other words, this is pointing to a day when that future king comes and takes that scepter and it's his He's going to set up his earthly rule and that day will be filled with so much blessing, so much prosperity that the imagery there is that you can take your donkey, a nasty old donkey, and you can tie it to the choicest of vines because there's going to be so many vineyards. It's going to make Napa look like nothing. They'll be everywhere. And in that day, you won't even need tide to wash your clothes. There will be so much grapes, you can just wash them in wine. That is imagery of the kingly garden that has been reestablished in which there will be so much blessing and so much abundance, you can't even fathom it when that king comes. Now here's, here's a word, what are we to do with this? What does all this mean? What comes next? Here's what I want you to see. The next 1,000 years, everybody in Israel is gonna be looking to Joseph and Ephraim for their deliverer, but he never comes. And in fact, Ephraim will end up giving way to total idolatry. A thousand years later, Ephraim will be so corrupted. There's no way a ruler's coming from him. And a thousand years later in that day, God will raise up, not an Ephraimite, but a Judahite. A Judahite by the name of David, who is to be king over Israel. Now he is not the promised one, but he is king over Israel. And interestingly enough, David will eventually move the tabernacle, the presence of God to a place called Shiloh. And God will then make a promise to David Listen to this, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. Listen to these words. When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, so David's gonna die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. And I will establish, listen to three things here. I will establish his kingdom and he shall be a house for my name, and I will establish his throne of his kingdom forever. Kingdom, house, throne. Notice those three things that God says are gonna come through David's line, which David is a Judahite from Judah's line. Kingdom, house, throne. Here's what's cool. Blow your minds right now. 1,000 years will pass from Judah to David when God makes that promise to David. And then from David, 1,000 years will come until God is gonna make a promise to a young virgin, a young Judahite virgin, who's in a little town called Bethlehem. A little girl, young woman named Mary, and who is in Bethlehem eventually, the home of King David, a Judahite. And before that child is conceived and born, an angel appears to this Judahite mom. And this Judahite mom is told by an angel these words in Luke chapter one, verses 31 and through 33. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And listen to this, the Lord God will give him, see if you can see it, the throne 
of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Did you see those same three things? Do angels read their Bibles? Yes, they do. So he tells her, this child conceived in your womb by the hand of God, his name is Jesus, and he is the promised one of Genesis 3.15 that was the promise made to Eve. He's the promised one of Genesis 12 that was promised to Abraham. He's the promised one of Genesis 49 that was made to Judah. He's the promised one of 2 Samuel 7 that was made to David. He has come now and has promised you, O Mary, the king is here. And his name is Jesus and he shall save his people from their sins. And his kingdom will now be established and he shall rule forever and forever. Church, does your Bible play around? Does God play around? No, he does not. The God who promises from the beginning is the God who is faithful to provide in the end. And he has answered that promise from Genesis 49. This is why it's such a big deal. Because Judas, Judah, Jesus, this Judahite did come. And like Judah of old, he came and he substituted his life for us so that we could live. He died on a cross to satisfy the wrath of God, to absorb the penalty of our sin that we deserved, which was death, and he took it for us. And then three days later, he resurrected conquering our greatest enemies of sin, Satan, and death. And by evening, he was dividing the spoils amongst us. 40 days later, he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, the place of strength and rule, where there he received a scepter, a ruler's staff, which has not departed from his hand since that day. And right now he sits enthroned on heaven on high, overlooking and sustaining all events on earth. And right now, there is a unique window when his main purpose, he is in the business of gathering a people for himself because that's what kings do. They gather a people for himself, saving them from their sins. But make no mistake, there is one day coming still when he is going to wage war against the earth and all the evil that is within the earth, against all that is rebelling against God and his people. Now, I have no idea when that day is to come. It sure feels like it's getting close. I have no idea when that is, but I do know this. Revelation 5, and here's where it all ties together. I'm gonna land with this one. We read it at the beginning of the service. Revelation 5 tells us that in a day when there seems to be no deliverer that can possibly come and rescue us from all this madness that is happening on the earth right now, when it seems all hope is lost, then hear these words. When John is receiving this vision and he says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated, where? On the throne. A scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And here's the sad part. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. There is no deliverer that could be found. All hell is about to break loose on the earth. All evil and rebellion is ramping up and there doesn't seem to be a deliverer. And John, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. But please do not miss verse five. And one of the elders said to me, oh, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of who? Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Where have we seen that before? Genesis 49. The root of David, 2 Samuel 7, has conquered. That's through the cross so that he now has the authority. He can open, he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And you know what happens after that, church? As all hell breaks forth on earth, that enthroned king will return 
And in one sweeping moment, he will wipe out all his enemies once and for all. And whereas the cross defeated the power of sin, Satan, and death, when Jesus, our promised messianic king returns, he will wipe out the presence of sin, Satan, and death. And in that day, there will be so much abundance. All your wounds will be healed. All things will be made new. You can wash your clothes in grapes. There's gonna be so much of it because that is our ultimate hope. Church, hear this from Genesis 49. Do not be discouraged. I know our world seems crazy right now. I know World War III feels like it's about to break out. Every pastor I know seems to be pivoting right now to end time sermon series. We're gonna get there. We're gonna do Daniel next year, but you don't have to worry about it right now. All you need to know right now is there is a promised king who is on the throne And what matters most right now is that Israel repents and turns to her savior, that the Palestinians repent and turn to their savior, Jesus Christ, and that everybody in the city of Dallas repents and turns to their savior. His name is Jesus Christ. So that right now, as he gathers a people for himself that is saved, we can put our full confidence and hope that one day he will return and he will make all things new. Amen. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, you can clap for that. That is our greatest hope. If you haven't put your trust in Jesus, oh, that you would do so today. Bend the knee now and turn to your prophesied and anticipated and fulfilled messianic king and be saved as we await for his return. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for a word of hope in a day of sorrow. Thank you for a word of truth in a day of lies. God, may we understand that the same God who promised is the same God who fulfills. That God, you are not asleep at the wheel. You know exactly what you're doing right now. And Lord, I pray that you by your spirit's power would move in this room, that you would move in the city of Dallas, you would move in the Middle East, that God, you would draw others to repentance, that they would turn from their sin and put their trust in you. And may we rest in the full confidence that one day your son, our king, will return. And it's just as he promised, and he will make all things new. We pray this for your glory, certainly for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.